Well, it is Christmas time, if you didn't know that already. I know I'm Captain Obvious standing up here telling you that. Uh, your kids have been counting down the days. They'll start the day after Christmas counting down again, uh, waiting until the next Christmas, and they'll be making their list early on. And uh, it's, it's that time of year that we, I think, I think, I can safely say, most people in this room enjoy seeing it come, but they equally enjoy seeing it go. Uh, it's kind of like filled with highs and sighs, you know, the, 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 the both ends of the spectrum. I mean, the high is you get to see family, you get to eat all this bad food, uh, all the gifts that are given and so forth. The, the sigh is you have to go see family, you have to deal with the calories that you ate, and now you have to pay for the food, the gifts that you just bought. So, I mean, it's kind of the highs, the ups and the downs all rolled up in one. And there's one thing that I'm always glad when December 26th comes along, and that's that we get our radio stations back to somewhat normal. Uh, it's like you get your shopping malls back to somewhat normal, and the Christmas music kind of goes away. I don't know about you, but I'm almost tired of it. Uh, I, I'm getting really close. And there was actually a, a, a complaint that was filed in Austria uh, with the Labor Department, and it was a brought together by Austrian Union private employees, got together and said and did their research and filed a complaint against the number of ongoing Christmas jingles in the air, that the jingles had lost their, their, their jangle and that, that it was time for them to go. They were on their nerves. And they literally coined the phrase that it is creating psychoterrorism. To hear the same songs again and again and again. So, how many of y'all are suffering from psychoterrorism of hearing the same song over and over? Okay. Uh, it says that the workers, quote unquote, the workers uh, were more aggressive and often developed an allergy to Christmas music. So, uh, if you're facing an allergy to Christmas music, you're suffering from psychoterrorism. Time to turn off the Christmas music. I'm the person who likes to turn it on in, no, in November, the 1st of November, but I'm ready to turn it off now. So, but this, this, this season is full of a lot of stuff, a lot of going on. We spend a lot, we do a lot, we go a lot, we eat a lot, and that's okay. That's all right for a time, for a season, as long as you're not regretting it the other uh, 360-something days of the year. Um, Americans will spend about $220 billion at Christmas time. That's a lot of money, uh, and we uh, do a lot at Christmas time. We will wrap, uh, throw away four. 400 million pounds of wrapping paper every Christmas season. 20,000 kettlebells will be, uh, will be stationed at strategic locations by the Salvation Army. It's just a full season. Uh, and again, we're glad to see it come. We're also glad to see it go. Now, the thing about this holiday season, uh, the USA Today published a survey that was done in asking Americans, what is it that they neglect most during the Christmas season? And I want to give them to you in the order, uh, in kind of a, a reverse order here. The number three, third thing that people uh, neglect during the Christmas season is housework. 
All right, it's the first thing that, or that's the third thing that goes, okay? Uh, but it's right up in the top five of what goes. So if you're a guest from out of town today and you're with some people, we, I know we have a lot of our people out of town, but if you're in town today and you're staying with some family members, please do them a favor. Don't go through all the closets of their house right now because that's where everything else is, okay? If their house looks immaculate, it's because everything else is in the closet or under the bed. Uh, exercise, number two, uh, is what goes at this time of year. And again, we just kind of let our hair down, we eat what we want to eat, we do what we want to do, and then we regret it the day after Christmas or so forth. And so we start making New Year's resolutions, I'm going to lose this, I'm going to go back to the gym, all that kind of stuff takes into play. But the number one thing, I want us to stop it right here, right now, this week, and there's a perfect time to stop it. We're a few days out from Christmas, schools are on vacation, people are going to start traveling. The number one thing that we neglect is personal time. Taking time for ourselves and just stopping. Now, I know it's hard when you travel and you're eating and you're cooking and you're doing and you're buying and you're wrapping and you're doing all this stuff at Christmas time, but let's stop it to, for at least a period of time where we can stop the fast craziness of, of the season and reflect. Let's stop the cra- fast and craziness of the season and go inside of ourselves long enough to really assess where we are. That if I were to stay on the same track in the next year, will 2014 be any different or any better or any worse than 2013? Because if I always do what I've always done, I'll always get what I've always got. And it will never change and tomorrow won't be any different than today. And 2014 won't be any different. Now, next Sunday, I'm going to come back and I'm going to actually share a message. going to stay in the kind of un-theme. And I'm going to talk about having an unprecedented new year. And what does that look like for you and I? And so just kind of be thinking, but it would be great this week, and I'm giving you permission, in fact, I'm challenging you to carve off an hour here, 30 minutes there, 15 minutes here, and just stop long enough and reflect. Start writing things out. Thoughts disentangle themselves when they move from your lips to your fingertips. So start writing it out. What is it that you want to see different in the next year? What is it that you want to carry over into the next year? We've tried with this unthemed to kind of to kind of have an unusual Christmas, if you will, and we've talked about having an uncommon Christmas. And one of those things about an uncommon Christmas would be to slow down. That would be an uncommon Christmas. To take time for yourselves. That would be, obviously, according to the study, an uncommon thing to do. So let's do that. We've also talked about it being an unforgettable Christmas. Maybe not just for you, getting the most expensive and most valuable gift that you've ever got in your life, what you always wanted or whatever, everything on your list. But what could be an unforgettable Christmas that you could help someone else have? How could you help someone else have an unforgettable Christmas? Now, we've put the challenge out there. I want to just state it one time today in today's service. and we won't announce it again later on or any other time today. But this coming Christmas Eve night on, at 3.30 and I think 3.30 and 5, or just show up and we'll be here, uh, in the afternoon and in the evening, we're going to have two services, and the Christmas Eve services. And in that service at the very end, we're going to collect an offering. And that offering is going to go three different pots. All right. A third of that's just going to take care of the ministries that you're appreciating, that your family are experiencing, and that are, that we serve Northwest Arkansas through. All right. A third of it will go there. A third of it will help those from our church that are members of our church who are willing to take vacation time, take take loss of pay or whatever, to go and to serve, pay their own way to serve around the world. Now, let me just tell you, brag on you for just a moment, because last year we had such an amazing Christmas offering that we were able to give scholarships to our members equivalent to 25% of the cost of a trip. 
Now that is amazing. We have had churches ask us how we do this because we send out more than the average bear. We send out more than, uh, than most churches do. And we are giving 25% scholarships. We're doing that because of you and because of this one day a year that we take up one offering on one day. So think about it like that. But another third of that will go to help those who are caught in the bondage, in the slavery, literally, modern-day slavery of human trafficking. Brothels in the northeast of India, in Siligree area, to be, just to be exact. We're hoping to help in this, in this crossroads of trafficking to be able to help start that what a movement or be in on the ground floor of starting to help rescue women who want to get out of this. We're going to be sending teams there this year to work with the ladies that we will be helping to give new skills to, a new home to, a new life to, that they see no hope of getting out of. That's what one offering will do, what we're going to be a part of on Christmas Eve. So make it an unforgettable Christmas. How can you do that? But also, I want it to be, make it an unceasing Christmas. Yes, even though I want Christmas music to go away, uh, I also want it to be an unceasing Christmas where it's not something that we just put it away with the tinsel and the tree, but it's something that we truly understand the full impact, the full ramifications of what it means to have this babe Jesus come put on flesh and dwell among us and live with us and serve us and die for us. And what does that mean in our lives? So take your Bibles, look at the gospel of John today. John chapter 1 is where we'll be. This is not one of the Christmas narratives, if you will, like Luke and Matthew that you might be more familiar with. But it is a prologue to the Gospel of John. It's kind of the first 18 verses kind of set the stage to lay the foundation or the foreword to the book, if you will, to the Gospel of John. And in these 18 verses, we're only going to look at about four or five of them. But hopefully we're going to get enough from this that we will understand the full impact of what this Christmas gift is. This Christmas gift in Christ that we receive in Him. Now, when you look at the Gospel of John, you'll find that that even in this prologue, there's two different names given to describe Jesus. There's 117 names uh, total throughout the Bible describing Jesus who Jesus is. He's called lots of different things. He's called light in this passage, but he's also called the Word. Jesus is the Word. Now that may be a bit strange to think of Jesus as the Word. What does that mean that Jesus is the Word? He's more than just the Word. Now when you think of words, I'm using words right now. I'm trying to communicate right now using words. I have a black book up here that has black ink on white paper And it is full of words. When we think of words, we think of spoken word like we just experienced here. Or we think of the written word that that we read here. We think of words like that. But let me tell you this. Jesus is that and more. He is also the living word. Now, there's a difference. Let me illustrate it like this. I might tell you today verbally that I love my family. I might tell you how much I love my family. I might go home and get, get real hallmarky for a moment and start writing love letters to my family and how much I love them and all this kind of stuff and write, wax on eloquently about how much I love my family. I've used the spoken word. I've used the written word. But you know what my family really wants from me? And know what you really want to see? Is you want to see the living word of Mike 
being lived out, truly loving his family. Because I can write about it and I can talk about it all day long, but really what I want is I want to see it. Because if I see it, I'm experiencing it. And it's not theoretical, it's practical, it's real, it's right there. Jesus is called in the Gospel of John, the living Word of God. Now John chapter 1 verse 1 is a, is a commonly quoted verse and it literally says that Jesus is the Word. In the beginning was the Word in John chapter 1 verse 1. Was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. Now... That is who Jesus is, and you could literally insert the word Jesus in place of the word. In the beginning was Jesus. He didn't begin in the manger. He's always existed. And Jesus was with God. With God means equal to God, okay? And Jesus was God. All right, so Jesus has always been God. He's always existed. He's equal to God. It's not three different gods, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They are one God. They are together. But Jesus is that living Word of God. He is how we get to know the God the Father. And the interesting thing is, is that we come to this time of year and we come to verse 14, which is my favorite verse, and it goes on with the same theme here. And it says that the word, what? Became flesh. That's what we're celebrating. That's what we're here doing. That's what we're talking about this time of year. We're celebrating the word becoming flesh. Jesus putting on flesh and and living among us. This is not the only time. It's not only in John chapter one that Jesus is mentioned as the word of God. You go to the last book of the Bible and you'll find Jesus mentioned as the word of God as well. In the final triumph scene of the, of all mankind, it says he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called what? The Word of God. The Word of God. Now, this is important because the Word is not some abstract book. It's not some philosophy. It's not some idea. It's not me waxing eloquently. When in John chapter 1, it's speaking of the Word, it's speaking of a person. And that person is Jesus, and He is the living Word of God. And we come in this time of year and we celebrate this so uncommon, so unfathomable, so unlikely gift of Jesus Christ. And what do we get? What do we receive in this unlikely, unusual gift from God? I want to mention three things. The first thing is that we receive as a gift from God, the intimate gift of God in Jesus Christ. The intimate gift. Now, This is a beautiful reality that I'm afraid some of us don't live in. We theoretically know it, but we don't live in it. And that the intimacy that God wants to have with us is He's not a distant God. He's not a far-off God. He's not an arm's-length God. He is a God who comes to us, who pursues us, who longs for us, who wants us, who wants to be in relationship with us. Now, I know I may be speaking obvious theological truth to a lot in this room, but let's just dwell there for a moment. We don't have an untouchable, inaccessible, faraway, isolated God. We have an intimate, touchable, approachable, a God who is pursuing us. He came to us. He initiates a relationship with us. And that is a beautiful thing. As the Word became flesh and He dwelt among us. See, Jesus is light. He is life. He is love. And the light looked down and He saw the darkness and He said, There will I go. 
said Light. Life looked down and he saw death, and he said, There will I go, said Light. Love looked down and he saw despair. There will I go, said Love. So came Light and shone truth. So came life and conquered death. So came love and gave hope. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. I love this phrase. It is, I, I know I have a lot of favorite Bible verses and I come to that often and I find myself repeating myself. This is one of my favorite. This, this is my favorite. Verse 14 of the Gospel of John. I think it says it all. And it says here that Jesus Christ came and he dwelt among us. Now, I like the way the message paraphrases it. Because the way the message paraphrases it, it says it like this, that Jesus moved into our neighborhood. I love that. But what kind of neighborhood did he move in? Did he move into the nice gated neighborhood? The real expensive home neighborhood? Did he move into that kind of neighborhood? No. He moved into Nazareth. You read the Gospels, you'll find that the Bible says in the Scriptures that nothing good comes out of Nazareth. That was the wrong side of the tracks. Jesus, when He moved into this earth, when He put on flesh and He dwelt among us, and He moved into the neighborhood, He moved into Skid Row. He moved next door to pimps and prostitutes and perverts. That's where He moved. And the fact, the mere fact that God of God, the holy God, the perfect God would pursue me to the level of degradation that I don't want to go, but yet his love will still flow, is absolutely worthy of worship. He is worthy of that worship. It should move me, it should move us to know that our God loves us so much that he will move next to nothingness and brokenness and filth and shame. There's nobody that He won't move next door to. I've been reading in my own personal times with the Lord in the book of Hosea. Now I have to say that I've really felt like God led me to Hosea because Hosea is not exactly a real popular book. In fact, probably the pages of most of your Bibles are still stuck together in Hosea. You, maybe you didn't even know Hosea was even a book in the Bible. But here, here's, here's, here's the thing about Hosea. It's really hard for even theologians to deal with Hosea. Because in the very first chapter of Hosea, Hosea is told to go marry a prostitute. Not exactly what you want to tell your kids growing up. Hey, go find a prostitute and marry them. So it's not your conventional way, but it's a part of God's plan. He brings it together. He communicates a message to the people of Judah. And I've been reading through Hosea, and God really grabbed a hold of me because in one passage of Scripture, in chapter 6, He really is kind of giving them the what for, and this is why I'm going to judge you, and this is why I'm going to do... And then He comes to verse 6, and He says this. He says, For I desire loyalty, not sacrifice. Knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. I desire... What does God desire more than religious ceremonies, more than religious functions, more than offerings that we can give even on a Christmas Eve offering? He desires a loyal relationship. He desires faithfulness and commitment. And I've just been stuck on that word loyalty. God, am I loyal to you? Or am I cheating on you? I can't get this verse out of my mind. 
And I don't desire burnt offerings. What I desire is the knowledge of God. This is what God is saying to His people. That I desire loyalty. I desire the knowledge of God. I I desire an intimate awareness with you. See, God already knows you. He made you. He knows your secrets. He knows your blind spots. He knows the hair on your head or the lack thereof. He knows all that. But the question is, do you know Him? So I think the challenge is not that He would know us. The challenge is that would we know Him? So my question to you in this week that I'm giving you the permission, no, I'm telling you to take time for yourself. Evaluate and assess how intimate you are with God. How close, tight, connected. How loyal. How much do you really know God? But not only is there an intimate gift that comes with this package in Jesus, but there's also an imminent gift of God. An imminent gift. Now, let me explain that. Let me explain it like this. Music is a form of art. Art is a language of the soul. We, we, we put it out there. We do it in poetry. We'll do it in canvas. We can do it in so many different ways we can express art. But it's really that music. Let's talk about music. Music is the language of the soul. It's a form of art. And you put it out there and you sing it and you declare it. And it means more to different people at different times in their life and all that kind of stuff. And for the longest time, churches would sing great hymns of the faith. And they're great hymns and we still integrate them into our singing. But we've integrated praise songs into that. And we kind of do a little bit of both. But some churches were all about just the hymns. And the hymns are great. But they speak of the transcendence of God, which is important. God of earth and outer space. A mighty fortress is our God. These are great hymns that speak of the greatness and the vastness of God that we cannot get away from. We should not walk away from. Holy, holy, holy. Great hymn, sends tears to my eyes when I think about the holiness of God and the lack thereof in me. The transcendence of God. Praise songs many times, praise courses, emphasize the eminence of God. That God is close. That God is personal. That God is with us. And God is vast and mighty and a fortress is our God and a holy, holy, holy. He is all of that way out there. We need to not lose lose sight of that. But we also need to see at Christmas what we're really coming to is we're really coming to this imminence of God, that that, that proximity of God, that, that nearness of God, that God with us. Verse 14, the Word became flesh and He dwelt among us and we have seen His glory. To see something is to experience something. Let me ask you, on a spiritual level, when was the last time, if ever, have you seen God? Seen God at work in someone else's life. Seen God at work in your circumstances. You don't get to see the flesh and blood, but you get to see God's hand move in a marriage that's about to fall apart. You get to see God move in a life of a child who's wandering away from God and then come back. You get to see God's hand in so many different ways. If our eyes are open, our heart is ready, and we're in this relationship with God, you get to see. Have you seen His glory? This word saw, we saw, is literally means to watch as if you were watching in a theater. Have you seen God at work? Have you seen His glory? The word glory here is the word doxa, which is where we get the word doxology, which is where we get the idea and the concept of worship. So does what you see turn into worship? Or does what you see just turn into the mundane? Or have you even seen God? Think about it for a moment. Because when you see God, you will see and it will send you into worship. 
Verse 18, how do I see God? No one has ever seen God. That's what it says, verse 18. How can I see him in verse 14 but not see him in verse 18? Well, here's how. The only God who is the, uh, the Father said, He has made him known. So if you and I want to see God, you know how we see God? We see God by looking at the life of Jesus, by studying the life of Jesus. That's where we see God. That's why it's not another philosophy, it's not another idea, it's not another leader. It is Jesus and Jesus alone. The word glory is important to understand. It's important to understand in verse 14. It's important to understand throughout the Bible. You'll find it in the Old Testament. One, I love the fact it stumped me for a long time, the Old Testament word for glory. In the Old Testament, it means thickness, density. It's interesting. Talking about the glory of God throughout the Old Testament, and it speaks of thickness. It speaks of density, it speaks of mass, it speaks of weight, of substance. It took me a long time to wrestle with that, that word and what it would mean in, in my own life and how am I supposed to bring glory to God and, and all that kind of stuff and, and what is the glory of God. And, and I, I think the best way I can illustrate it is maybe through a bag of Cheetos. Anytime you bring food to the table, it always helps you think, right? Now, if you take this bag of Cheetos, it says on here, it is made with real cheese. But if you turn it over past the false advertisement and you look at the back, oh, there might be some cheddar cheese in there about after the the cornmeal, after the sulfate after the things that I can't pronounce and I probably shouldn't be eating after the vegetable oil, the cheese seasoning. That's what you get. You get real cheese seasoning. And you go on down through this and I go, okay, well, let me just try this out. All right. So I open up my little Cheeto bag here and I get me this nice, looks like cheese to me, smells like cheese. It tastes like cheese. It must be cheese, right? Exactly. It's real food. It's got to be the real stuff here. It's made with real cheese. Where am I going with this? Just hang with me. All right. I'm, I'm, does anybody like cheese, Cheetos? Anybody in the room? Okay. The first person that can get here. All right, George, you, you get the Cheetos. All right. You can have the rest. No, you can have them all. Just share, them with the, share them with the people there. Share the love. All right. So we, 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 have, this, um, we have this idea of God... But God is, well, let's not talk about Cheetos yet. Okay. Um, now, this is a block of great value cheese. Okay. So this is a Walmart product. It's got to be real stuff, right? I turn it over. I'm in Walmart. I know whose butter's my bread. I'm in Walmart land. All right. First ingredient, milk. Second ingredient, cheese. Cheese makes cheese. That's convenient. Cheese makes cheese. God the Father, God the Son, they're from the same. See, hang with me. It's going to make sense in a minute. If I open this this baby up and I start to eat this cheese, I'm going to come to the edge of this and I'm going to pinch off some. 
And I'm going to put this in my mouth. This is cheese. I know it is cheese. It's real cheese. I can feel it. It looks like cheese. It even says, I read the label, there is cheese. The problem is, the problem is, is some of us have a cheese puff God. That's it. It looks like a God. It smells like a God. It must be a God. But really, we don't know. We get good philosophies. We get good advice. We, we kind of have this, this the kind of love affair with God. And there might be a little bit of cheese sprinkled in. And there might be a little bit of God sprinkled into this. But what, you, what happens when the real world pressures of life come upon you? How good does your God do? It doesn't do so good. You don't know that till crisis comes. You don't know that until all hell breaks out. But this is what you've been trusting your life in? And is that real God? The thickness of God, the mass of God, the concentration of God, the glory of God is what we speak of here. It is real. It is thick. It is, you can't penetrate this. This is made. Cheese of cheese, cheese from cheese, God from God. God the Father was sent by God the Son. We have the fullness of God. He even goes on to say that. He said, the fullness full of grace and truth. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But I want to ask you today, in your week, this next week, I want you to figure out what kind of God you have. What kind of relationship with God? Because the real God, the living God, the God who came to earth, the God who came to, to live and be with us, He wants an intimate relationship with you. He also wants an eminent relationship. It's full. It's full of His glory. It's full of something that you have seen. It's not something far off in distance. It is real. It's up close. It's personal in your own life. It's also the intentional gift from God. Notice what the ingredient label is. It says He is full. Full of what? Grace and truth. Let me ask you a question. Can you summarize your life in two words? That's part of your challenge this week, part of your homework. Go home and to put your life into two words. Where you're at right now, two words. You, this is important. This is important if you're getting a job because I read this past week, put it on Twitter and all that kind of stuff, that a job recruiter, a, a, a person in, in human resources will only give a resume six seconds. And then they're moving on to the next resume. Six seconds, they're evaluating you. You had better be able to sell yourself in six seconds. What's your six seconds? What's your two words? When you come to the life of Christ, you don't come to a puff of air. You come to one who is full. John 1.14, full of what? Grace and truth. Full of grace, full of truth, full of what we need in this world, more of what is grace. Grace is this indescribable forgiveness and love from God. We talked last week about, about mercy. It's, it's, it's not getting what you do deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. You don't deserve forgiveness. You don't deserve grace. You don't deserve love. You don't deserve that. I don't either. But what did Jesus came? He came full of it. 
I love Rick Warren when he said this. He said, the church would be a place of grace where mistakes aren't rubbed in, but they're rubbed out. We don't deserve mercy. We don't deserve grace, but Jesus is full of it. Number two, truth. Living by God's final standard. It's not only having grace and experiencing grace and then just keep on living like you want to live. It's actually finding that standard of measurement that God wants us to live by and living by it. I come back to Hosea yesterday morning, having my personal time with God. Hosea chapter 12, come to Hosea 12, 6. What does it say? You must return to your God. Maintain love and justice, two synonyms for grace and truth. You got to have love and justice. You got to have grace and truth. You got to have them working together. And then notice the next phrase and put your hope in God. When you're getting your life in order, let's back into this first. What does hope in God really look like whenever I'm maintaining love and grace? And why can I say that? Because when Jesus came to this earth, what did he come? He came full of grace and truth. Full of the density, the mass of God is not a bunch of air and factory-made cheese. It is the real stuff. Cheese made from cheese. God made from God. John MacArthur said it like this in his book, God With Us. He said, The world is happy to let Jesus Christ be a baby in a manger, but not willing to let Him be the sovereign King and Lord that He is. Yet that is the central truth of the Christmas story. The child of Christmas is God. And we've got to really embrace that fact. And we've got to really live in that. Because if we don't, if we just play church on Sunday, church in this time of the year, we will be playing cheese puff God. And when we play cheese puff God, when the real world comes, it doesn't hold up so well. It doesn't hang in there so well. Let me tell you, in this same passage, let me tell you what I think is the saddest verse in the Bible. Verse 11. You might have your Bibles open right out to the side as I did. The saddest verse in the Bible. When Jesus came, He came and He served and He lived and He gave and He did everything. But in John chapter 1 verse 11 says, And He came to His own and His own did not receive Him. What a sad tale. That Jesus came, He lived, He died. And he was not received. The saddest verse in the Bible is followed by one of the most hope-filled promises in the Bible. Verse 12 says, but. Oh, I love the buts of the Bible. I hope you're a but in eternity. And I mean that. That kind of but, okay? But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, He gave the right to become what? Say it again. Children of God. God. We become a child of God when we receive Him, when we walk with Him, when we experience Him, when we have an intimate, imminent relationship with Him. And the glory is full and it's real in us. And it's not a religious playing games with cheese puff gods. But we have a real relationship with a real God who's full and overflowing, who wants to be our Father. I'll tell you, everyone in this room is either living verse 11 or you're living verse 12. Classify yourself. Because He's here. He has come. 
He has lived, He died, He rose again, and He's coming again. And as we've heard in the spoken word, we're waiting. But the question is, will you be ready? Are you living verse 11 or are you living verse 12? You've received Him. You're a child of God. Let's not play games any this Christmas season. He came for real. And He came for you and for me. Would you bow your heads with me? We're going to do kind of something we don't normally do, not because we're against it, but because this is the most appropriate time for it. Are you living verse 11? Or are you living verse 12? If you're living verse 12, you're a child of God. You've received Him. You're walking with Him. You know Him. And that's a great thing this coming season. If you're living verse 11, He's come to you, but you've not received Him. My challenge to you is to step into the next verse. Today in this room, you can just write where you're at, write where you are, just whisper a prayer, something like this up to God. Say, God, I realize that I have had you as a cheese puff God, but I want the real. I want the cheese from the cheese. I want, the, I want God from God. I want, I want the Lord of the universe being the Lord of my life. And I've sinned. Tell him that. You don't have to list them all out there. Just tell Him, Lord, I, my life is full of lies and cheating and, and deception and whatever. But I want to be full of You. I want to be forgiven. You pray your own prayer there. And I'll tell you this, don't leave here without telling someone. I'll be hanging out in the connection area. Come tell me. You tell the person sitting next to you when you get up. Tell tell someone you love that you've given your life to Jesus. You've received Him today. Just in your own way, just pray it right now. You think, Mike, is it that easy? If you are serious about it, believe with your heart, confess with your mouth, you will be saved. It's not my words. It's Romans chapter 10. Are you serious and are you ready to follow Him? Lord Jesus, thank You for coming. Thank you for living in our neighborhoods, wanting to be intimate with us, wanting to show yourself to us, not far off, not distant, but right with us, your glory and the fullness thereof. Lord, you are Emmanuel. You are with us. 